Hey, good to see you, and I hope I can get you just half as pumped up as what I hear the kids' noise overflowing into this room. It's uh, so good to hear that. So isn't it good to be back together and be able to worship and just uh, re- remind each other through our singing of, of the amazing grace and love of God, which we've uh, been singing about tonight. Over these last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the greatest return, which is the great Christian hope that we have to look forward to, the return of Jesus. And sometimes things look dark in this cultural moment, Yeah. But we don't have to despair. We have this amazing hope that Christ is coming again and he will put all things right. And speaking of despair, I wonder if you've ever known the relational ping of being unfairly criticised. Having your name dragged through the mud. And as we get to chapter 2 of Thessalonians, this is what we'll be seeing. Unfair criticism and how to handle that. So if you've got a Bible, you can begin to turn there. It's super challenging. I think it's one of life's biggest challenges, actually, to to work with negative feedback when it comes our way. Sometimes when you you make a stupid mistake, you kind of anticipate it was going to come your way. However, there's other times where you just can't follow the trend. It's like there's no discernible reason. There's no trail that lines up here as to why I've just been hammered the way I have. And this is what we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians 2. It's the Apostle Paul justifying himself against what he feels like are unfair accusations. Before we read this vigorous defence or right after we read it, I want to just step back tonight before we consider it. And I want us to be considering Jesus' response to unfair opposition as compared to how Paul responds here. Because we'll try and wrestle with the tension that rises to the surface in those two comparisons because there certainly is a tension between the two. And then we'll bring home the bacon by talking about some practicalities about how you and I might go about working out when it is time for us to defend ourselves and when we should just stand back and leave room for God to act. But it's certainly a massive, massive challenge to work out how to respond to criticism. As we get to just the first verse of our reading tonight, I think we discover the point of this whole chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2 where Paul writes, you yourselves know that our visit was not a failure. And that's the accusation that Paul's having to correct or respond against throughout this entire chapter. There's a, there's a negative voice out there that's saying, waste of time, that guy can be disregarded. He was a flash in the pan. He was one of those religious businessmen that come into town one day and gone the next. And this is a kind of criticism that is floating around, that Paul is trying to respond to here to the church. And he's ticked off. This criticism hurts. It doesn't sit at all well with him. And everything that flows on in this chapter, at least the verses we're going to look at, I think comes back to that very first verse there, that he's got to respond to this accusation that all that you did was just a big waste of time and the church shouldn't take your word seriously. So let's read on. 1 Thessalonians 2. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly 
in spite of great opposition. So you can see, we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. You can see the accusations that he's responding to here. For we speak as messages approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had the right to make some demands of you. But instead, we were like children among you. We were like a mother feeding and caring for our own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Before we get into Paul's head tonight and all that's going in in this justification that he makes of himself, let's take a step back and consider how did Jesus handle opposition? Because here we have a problem. Clearly we see Paul defending himself against his accusers here. Why is that a problem? Because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus contradicts this example completely. See, when Jesus was struck, he didn't strike back. When his critics uh, fired hate towards him, he, he just took it on board. He didn't strike back. It's no surprise that Jesus acted in this manner either. It was as expected 600 years before his birth. It was prophesied by Isaiah 600 years prior. Predictions were made that would help the people identify the Messiah. When he eventually showed up, this is what you should look for, Isaiah says. Here are the characteristics of the coming king. This is what the Messiah will be like. He will be oppressed and treated harshly. He'll never say a word in retaliation. He'll be led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shearers, he will not open his mouth. And when Jesus shows up, that's exactly what happens. He fulfills that prophecy to a T. He didn't shape up for the fight. In fact, when people came to take his life, he let them get away with it. And his associates are shocked by his actions. It's why when Jesus, when things heat up for Jesus and the soldiers come to take him away, Peter's response is, I'll protect you, Lord. And Peter pulls out his sword, and I have a theory. This isn't in your Bible. This is a John O theory, so feel free to disregard it. But I have a theory because the scripture does tell us that Peter took off a guy's ear with his sword. But my theory is this. The guy went like this when the sword came. And he only got the ear. But I think Peter was going for the jugular. I think Peter was firing to kill. I don't doubt it for a second. They couldn't comprehend Jesus' actions here because Jesus picks up this guy's ear and puts it back on again. And if anything, he rebukes Peter for doing that and says, you know, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, if you want to take up a sword to fight, there will always be a fight to find. You've got to put down the sword. Somebody's got to put down the sword. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, we're not going to go that way. Then not long after, all the disciples leave Jesus for dead. And I 
wonder whether it's that they didn't care or that they didn't comprehend what Jesus was up to there. Because Peter's gone into bat, like he's like, I'm ready to fight, I'm ready to stand with you. And then he kind of gets stood down for it and he's like, well, if you're going to play that way, I don't get it, so I'm out of here. And all the rest go too. I mean, if Jesus were the Messiah, where's the divine display of splendour? Where's the power? Why let the bad guys get away with murder? Because that's what he does and that's what they do. We're covering a lot of territory in a quick time. I just want to clip that model of Jesus for the sake of our discussion as we come to 1 Thessalonians 2 tonight. I wanted just to peek into the life of Jesus and see how he handled unfair treatment. Because when we contrast that with Paul, they don't sit well together. Jesus took the hit. Paul fights back at these bad guys when they criticise him. Not only did Jesus personally model a lack of retaliation, he also gave us messages along a similar ilk. Let me take a quick look with you, Matthew 5. It says this, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match an injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. This is a confronting passage. Bear in mind all of Matthew 5 is. It's smoking hot, this whole section of scripture. Jesus uses brutal language right throughout this passage. I think he's overcompensating to create a separation between what religion had, had kind of, had kind of uh, accepted as God-honouring and then what he reminds them is truly God-honouring. And he, and he says throughout that passage over and over again, you have heard, but I say, in other words, he redefines the religious systems at a time. And essentially what had happened, they fell into just obligation. They were just ticking boxes and thought that God was pleased. And Jesus goes, ah, ah, that's not how God operates. God wants a heart relationship. He wants you to obey, yes, but he wants you to obey the spirit of the law, not just the law. He wants to transform you from the inside out. So this striking language of Matthew 5 as a whole needs to be taken into consideration But what we can't do is just dismiss it. And people that take this scripture really seriously adopt a docile view of the world. Some take a really radical view from passages such as this and say that there's certain jobs like a police force or the military that are unfit for someone who would call themselves Christian. Because to fulfil those roles, you must undergo some form of aggression in order to to, uh, enforce the law or enforce the situation. So there's people that would say a Christian person should not be in those sort of roles because to be in those roles would be to be aggressive. And Jesus here is clearly telling us not to be that way. That's outside the realm of what we can chase down right now. But that's a big discussion. Our pressing mission, though, is to resolve or at least address this tension between the model and teaching of Jesus and the the model of Paul that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 2 where he strikes back. 
He's not letting the accusations go through the keeper. He's hitting these guys for six. He's swinging hard back at them. And we can't say of Paul what we could say of Jesus. We can't say Paul was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word in retaliation. Paul was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet as a sheep is silent before his shearers, so Paul did not open his mouth. We can't say that about Paul. While he didn't give a verbal barrage in defence, he got a written one here that we have, and he's ticked off, and he's going into bat for himself. We must ask why. Why does Paul defend himself so aggressively in this passage? A reminder of context. Paul made a hurried, unplanned exit from Thessalonica after just three weekends there teaching in the synagogue, right? His critics seized this opportunity of his, of his unplanned exit to make up their own version of the story. And they start gossiping. And they say about Paul, here's a guy that just comes in, takes your money and runs. Where is he now? He's probably on a yacht somewhere in the Bahamas, on a banana lounge sunbaking. I mean, this guy doesn't really care. If he did, he would still be here. And because he's not still here, he's not really serious. He's not really genuine. He doesn't really have integrity. And we realise here in Thessalonians, just like all of the letters to the churches, it's not poetry to admire. It's solving problems, actually. And this is no different. So Paul here writes from prison to set the record straight. But Paul, what about these instructions from Jesus about turning out the cheek when someone criticises you or is aggressive towards you? What do you do with that, Paul? You seem a bit hot under the collar. Well, let's understand the situation. Unlike today, here's a key point, the gospel hung entirely on the messenger. Unlike today, the gospel hung entirely on the messenger. The gospel relied on the deliverer. So here's what the go is. If Paul could be discredited, the gospel was discredited. So here in this chapter 2 of Thessalonians, Paul is not driven to defend himself. Actually, he's defending the gospel. And you might say, why is that different? Because at that point in history, apostolic authority was the biggest deal. It was the person who was God's representative to speak the truth on God's behalf. Now, if you're a thoughtful person about now, you'd be saying, but why is that different? Because nowadays in your church, you can hold a copy of the scriptures. And it's a good thing to do. And you should do that. You should always go away and check what Jono says against what the word of God says, the written word of God. Never stop doing that. When you listen to any speaker... But this church didn't have that option. They didn't have the completed canon, which we now have, which is the authoritative word of God. So how were they to know which was God's message and which wasn't? The messenger had a critical role. They had no written authoritative New Testament at this time. And it was a massive challenge to decipher which is actually of God and which isn't. You have something to consult to check my words, and you should. They didn't have that. They didn't have that. So the integrity of the messenger in these times is 
huge. And it's why this defence is needed from Paul, because it's such a formative time in the history of the gospel. And it's why he keeps harping on about his godly characteristics. He says, if I were a false prophet, if I were only in ministry for what I could get out of it, let's test that theory. What do you know is true about me? Let's start in verse 2. Would I have come to you from Philippi where I've just got hammered? We find that backstory in the book of Acts. And would I again open my big mouth about how good Jesus is if I'd known it was only going to draw more suffering my way? Because he did know that. He knew that. And yet still he went into public places and shared the message of Jesus. Would a false teacher do that in in the face of great opposition, invite persecution by continuing to be bold in the sharing of the gospel? Would a false teacher, verse 3, avoid trickery and deceit and flattery? In the start of verse 5, he argues. And verse, at the end of verse 5, if I'm a phony, like they say I am, would have I rejected the financial support of the church? I mean, that doesn't make sense for someone who's in ministry for their own benefit. And why would I, verse 9, which we didn't get to read, work so hard day and night, working my finger to the bone for the sake of the gospel, if I was just a phony? So Paul doesn't have to appeal to anything outside of what they had personally seen. He says, consider my track record and that will be enough for you to work out who is from God and who isn't. By their fruit, you will know them, Jesus says. And all these accusations levelled against Paul are false and baseless as unfair. But he rams that message home over and over again. In verse 1 he says, you yourselves know. He's just reminding him of the testimony of his life. Verse 2, you know, he says again. Verse 3, you saw. Verse 5, he says, you well know. He keeps on reaffirming to them that you've seen my model. You've seen my actions. You've seen my lifestyle. You've seen it over and over and over again. You know the real me. Stop believing the fake news. And he asked them to call to mind what they had seen. In doing so, they'd be able to make a fair-minded judgment call about who was really the godly leader and who wasn't. Upon considering all this, we can spot why Paul is so upset, yeah? He's being condemned and we get his frustration. It's not hard to work out. What isn't easy, though, is to marry up Paul's approach with Jesus. And these earlier instructions we had from Jesus about not striking back when we do get hate spitted our way. So what do we do with that? Because clearly Paul doesn't fit in neat uniform with Christ at this point. I can't completely resolve this tension for you tonight. That's why I call it a tension. Because some things in Scripture just sit there and they kind of pull against each other a little bit. And this is one of them. And when I was praying with the music team earlier, I kind of was praying that, Lord, when we receive criticism, help us to be both humble and secure. That's kind of where we need to be here. Like We, we hear what people have got to say, and yet we, we hold our security in Christ and know we are loved, and that's unchanging at the same time. So it's the messy middle, like so many other issues in theology. There's a messy middle that we have to kind of swim in here and this is a space. But the question I want us to round out tonight with is this, when should we defend ourselves? 
When should we defend ourselves? And we need great discernment here because we need to work out when is it a personal attack that I just need to let go? You know, if you've got kids young enough, you know the song, let it go, let it go. When is the time where I just need to let it go? And when is the time I need to step in? When is the time where if I get involved in that, it'll be just like a he said, she said argument, it'll be just tin tacks, it'll be just my pride doing the talking? And when is it actually a serious situation that will have gospel impact that won't just hurt me and my name, but will actually hurt the name of Christ if left unaddressed? That's one of the tensions that we're trying to manage here. Let me give you a wild example. Suppose a vicious allegation was circling around the church here. The treasurer is collecting the money out of the tin at the end of the weekend and he's going to the nearest pokey establishment and throwing it all in the machine and seeing what happens. Now, if that allegation became public and got out there, I say we'd need to address it. We'd need to do something about that because it's not just about David's name anymore and P.S. David's a good guy. He's not taking our money (laughs) to the pokey machines, just to clarify. Let's twist the example and say, say someone said, you know, David's dress code is really lousy. I mean, that red shirt he wears, it just really turns me off. Do we need to address that? Of course we don't. Or he wears odd socks. I mean, it may be comments that are mean-spirited, but they don't warrant a church-wide response. Some things do. Some things don't. Unfortunately, real-life scenarios are more nuanced than that. And we can't cover every single scenario tonight. But I do want to break it down to some practical wisdom. We do need to be led by the Spirit of God in each and every situation. But here's a few pointers as you seek that direction of the Holy Spirit. Firstly, give consideration to character. That is, the person doing the accusing, I mean. Give consideration to character. Their character. Have they ever been reliable? Does this completely come out of the blue? Is this person historically very, very, very positive? And then comes this this strand of negativity from them. If that's the case, take it seriously. That's not always the case, though. Proverbs warns us about people who make a habit of troublemaking. It says this in Proverbs 16, Scoundrels create trouble. Their words are a destructive blaze. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. Violent people mislead their companions, leading them down a harmful path. With narrowed eyes, just see them squinting, can you? (laughs) People plot evil. With a smirk, they plan their mischief. What's this telling us? What's it mean? It means we need to be discerning. If every single time you bump into Jason, he has the violin out, telling you about everything that's wrong with the world. He's forever complaining, you know, those people. Everybody's always wrong except them. They're complaining about everybody else and bagging the person that's absent. Jason has just revealed something about himself. He's a gossip. He's a grumbler. In the words of Proverbs here, he's a troublemaker. 
guess what will happen when you finish talking to Jason? And when you turn your back on him, guess what will happen to you? You'll go in the mincer just like everybody else. That person's just demonstrated their character to you by tearing down the people oh, that are absent. That woke you up. <laughs> Thanks, mate. That, um, don't know where I was up to now. <laughs> So what happens when, when um, you turn your back? You've, you've already seen a demonstration of what happens when people turn their back on Jason, right? So when you turn your back, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be hammered as well. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by that. Don't put too much credit in that bank because he's shown his colours. Don't react but do respond quickly. Next point. Don't react, but do respond quickly. Even when you are receiving feedback and it's hard to take, if it's been brought forward in the right spirit, try and receive it. Thank the person for the feedback, even if you're doing so through gritted teeth in the moment. Thank them for the feedback and commit to listening well. Even if it's delivered in a clumsy manner, still try and receive it. Pray over it. I didn't say stew over it. I said pray over it. The point is don't react, but do respond. What's the difference? You react when you haven't prayed over it. When you've prayed over it, you're better placed to respond, right? Me giving something over to God and involving him does something radical in my head and in my heart. Perspective shift Bringing God into the centre of my hurt feelings is a powerful thing. It helps me to respond rather than react. The Old Testament book of Job teaches us many things. But one clear thing that comes in the end of the book after Job has been accused wrongly by all of his friends, right at the end of the book, Job prays for his friends. And God deals mercifully with Job and God deals with these so-called friends as well. Don't react, but on the other hand, do respond and do strike while the iron's hot. Respond quickly. Don't use prayer as a hocus-pocus cover. Oh, I'm just praying about it. Well, how long have you been praying about it for? I mean, sometimes we can use that as kind of a, this religious smear just to not have to ever deal with anything. If there's a follow-up conversation to be had, make the appointment. Don't just sit on it for weeks. Jesus taught us to take action when it comes to hurts because if we just let them sit, they turn into resentment. We respond, not we react. We're also wise to consider our own personality tendencies. Consider your own personality tendencies. When it comes to conflict, know yourself. Are you a people pleaser who just never wants to upset anybody? Just a big soft teddy bear who avoids conflict at every opportunity. It's too scary to face. You've learnt that it never ends well, so you kind of sweep things under the carpet. 
Well, it doesn't work. Maybe, on the other hand, you're known as the person who always speaks their minds. Whoa. You have no trouble upsetting people. You've made a career out of it. We'll also be aware of that. Be aware of your starting point in your personality tendency because it helps you know what your next step is. For some of us, our next step will be this. A bit more listening. A bit less talk. And a bit more listening. For other of us, it'll be speak up more. If we don't know where our own tendency is, our own starting point is, we won't grow. A great question to prayerfully reflect on is this. Ask a trusted friend, what's it like to be on the other side of me when we're working stuff out? That's something we don't often think about. What's it like to be on the other side of me when we're working through a challenge or a difficulty? We must rush. Have a clear why when tackling a matter. Know why you're bothering to raise something that will cause angst. Have a clear why. It's simply why. If you're going to go there, know the why. Don't trigger conflict just to get a rise from someone. Relationships matter too much for that. Try and predict the carnage and rehearse how you're going to say it to minimise the carnage. You say, well, it's true. That's why I'm saying it. Well, true isn't enough. Maybe true that Kyle has an oversized nose, but it's not helpful to say. Doesn't help anybody. If Callie is upset that Erin didn't like her dress or taste in music, there's likely needing to be building a bridge in that situation. These are not gospel issues. So know your why. Why are you raising this issue? And is it worth it? Nobody has won or lost to Christ over whether people like our fashion or our music choice. Let's keep the big picture. Submit to fair-minded counsel over the journey, especially if a feud becomes an ongoing affair. Here's what's easy. We go to the echo chamber and we find other people that are also frustrated by the same thing we are, and that's not hard to do, is it? You kind of know. You kind of know when you've got deep frustration on an issue where people sit, which side of the ledger they sit on in relation to that issue. And we can kind of line up people that, that are on our side and are going to just be an echo chamber for us. Or we can have the wisdom to go to someone on the other side who's actually going to give me a few home truths and help me uncover what's my part in this situation. That's where the growth is. The growth is never in the finger-pointing exercise. Oh, yeah, well, he's just a nuisance or she's just a gossip. Or they, 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 they. There's no growth there. The growth is in going and spending time with someone who's going to unpack, well, what's your part of this conflict? What can you do about it? I have one final word, and it's this, leave the final word to God. Leave the final word to God. You don't have to have the last word. I grew up in a household of five kids. I was the youngest of four boys. There's also a sister in there. But safe to say, it was a loud environment. If you wanted to get your point across, it was a case of loudest voice wins. And we had these childish games that you can probably relate to if you've got siblings. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. It was just a case of who got the last word at times was the winner. 
didn't matter where the truth lay in that whole scenario. It was like whoever got the last word in was the winner. It was about getting the final word. Well, maybe that's how sibling rivalry works, but it's not God's way. It's not God's way. The Bible says, leave vengeance to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And even in this very moment, if there's someone who's been accusing you of things that aren't true and you feel like you've lost the right of reply, at the end of the day, if you're acting righteously, if you're living out God's way, if you're just being consistent, if you're being faithful, if you're telling the truth, if you're not living a double-sided life, you know, acting this way in this environment and another way in this environment, your character will stand the test of time. You'll come out the other side. Leave the final word to God. Commit your way to him. I invite you to stand for prayer. I have some good news and bad news as we move towards prayer tonight. <clears throat> we'll start with the bad news. That's always a good thing to get out of the way, yeah? The bad news is you've got someone accusing you before the throne of God every single day. That's what the Bible tells us. We've got an accuser and he's just there nonstop. Yep, 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 yep. Pointing out all your faults before the Lord. Doesn't care which part's true and which isn't. He's just there to accuse. He plays dirty. He'll go after you, try and lure us into temptation, and then point us and calls us fools when we slip into it. I mean, they accuse us there, the Bible says, before the throne of God, day and night, accusing the brethren. That's the bad news. The good news is you have an advocate there as well. Jesus Christ. And he stands there. And as the enemy yaps like a little Jack Russell, hope nobody owns one of those things. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Have you seen how he does this? Have you seen this? Have you noticed how he falls short here? Have you seen how he keeps repeating this same mistake? He yaps, 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 yaps. And the advocate stands there and says, He's mine. He's mine. I've chosen him, I love him, and there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. There's conviction, there's things that we, God raises with us that we need to get right with him at times, often, if you may, but there's no condemnation. I remind you of that tonight, and Lord, we turn our hearts towards you again. We just hold out our hands and say, Holy Spirit, wash us from false accusation. And we also give you permission, Holy Spirit, to convict us of things that we need to get right with you. We thank you, God, that your perfect love casts out fear. So Holy Spirit, be doing that right now in this moment. As things crop up in our mind and we, we know, Lord, we fall short. Or we know we've done something that we ought not to have done. But we ask, God, that we would plead the blood of Jesus. We just reach out to you and thank you that you are so willing to love us and accept us. 
as we come and just put our faith and our trust and our confidence in you. Lord, tonight we put our feet on the rock and we say we are not going to be moved by criticism and by things that are untrue. We are servants of the Most High God and we offer ourselves and we stand there in great humility, but we stand there also in great confidence, knowing our sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ because we lift it all to you now in your great name. Lord, as we sing, let chains be broken tonight and let lives be healed in Jesus' name.